This is a Federal News Network podcast. Vaccine mandates, their legal status, their enforceability continue to vex the military. Earlier this month, a Texas judge stopped the Navy from disciplining 35 Special Forces members who objected to the vaccine on religious grounds. Now the Justice Department has appealed the Texas ruling. It's the top story of this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Massioni. And we turn to Jared first. Jared, is the mandate then on or off at this point? For the military, uh, it is essentially on still. The only thing that has happened thus far is the judge has blocked enforcement as to this particular group of 35 Navy special operators. Not necessarily because the judge in Texas felt that the DOD didn't have the authority to implement the mandate, more that their religious rights were being violated by the fact that the Navy really didn't have a credible exemption process for religious reasons and that other types of exemptions such as health exemptions were treated much differently than religious exemptions in that the Navy has not granted a religious exemption for any vaccine in the in the course of the last seven years, leading the judge to conclude that it's essentially a foregone conclusion that if you apply for a religious exemption to a COVID vaccine, it is uh, it's just going to be rubber stamped as no. So these these folks really had no recourse, even if they did have genuine uh, genuinely felt religious concerns with taking the vaccine. Now, these 35, are they all of the same faith? Or do we know? We, we, we don't know much about them. There are a, a relative handful that are known even to the Justice Department. The preponderance of the, the plaintiffs in this case have not been identified and, and remain anonymous, um, it, which, you know, is, is not all that surprising in this community, a fairly secretive community. But B- DOJ argues that at least they need to understand who the litigants in the case are so they can mount uh, an, an effective defense here. What has happened now is that two things, really, the Justice Justice Department on the Navy's behalf has formally appealed this decision to the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. And at the same time, the Justice Department is asking that the entire case be moved out of this Texas district where this somewhat surprising ruling happened. Their fundamental argument, Tom, is that this this case really has no connection to Texas whatsoever, let alone this uh, judicial district where the decision was made and the case is being heard. They're arguing it needs to be moved either to Southern California, to Washington, D.C., or the Eastern District of Virginia. I suspect they think they might find a more friendly venue to their concerns in in one of those three districts. But the arguments essentially are Eastern District of Virginia, that's where the Pentagon is. Uh, Pentagon has its legal address in the District of Columbia, and Naval Special Warfare Command is in Southern California. So those are logical places to have venue for this case, and there's really none in Texas, is their argument. And what about the Army and the Air Force? They have not been granting religious exemptions either. Is there anything moving on the legal front for them? There have not been cases that have successfully challenged the mandate in those services, but you're right to point out that there have been relatively few, <laughs> relatively few religious exemptions in any of the service. In fact, the the only few that we know about have been in the Marine Corps. Those were announced just last week, and I believe only two of them. So it, they've been used sparingly, I guess is a good way to put it, across all of the military services. But to the best of my knowledge, there's been no successful litigation in the case of the Army, the Air Force so far. And Scott, let's talk about that recruiting issue and how the military services are facing it, and it apparently could have an effect on their ability to deliver the end strength they're authorized to, correct? That's right. Well, the military services, luckily for them, met their end strength goals in 2020, but they had to make some serious changes. As you can imagine, COVID-19 
really affected every facet of recruiting for the military services. They had closed schools, closed recruiting centers, and every other way that they really can reach out to people except for the Internet was pretty much uh, hindered in some way. So uh, what the Rand Corporation looked at was the first six months of 2020. What they found is that the military services, in order to reach their end strength, really relied on retainment, and that's what they focused on. And they got that retainment uh, to, to go up in order to meet that in-strength goal. And, they, and as I said, they met it. Uh, each service essentially met its 100% accession goal for 2020. But those are moving targets, targets and it's most likely that they dropped the goals that they, they had. In fact, the Air Force ended up dropping its goal nearly 20%. The Marine Corps dropped its 12 and the Army dropped its goal by about 10%. Yeah, and so the pandemic is that one of the reasons they're having trouble on the recruitment end yeah i mean the pandemic is mostly what they're thinking is a lot of the reason behind this but a lot of the avenues that they would use were closed before and then also there's the you know typical reasons that only about 25 percent 20 percent of the uh the young adult population is eligible to serve in the military and then you know the talent issue of dealing with getting the talents to people that they want from uh, Google or from uh, Uber or all these other companies that offer possibly better benefits or possibly better pay. Um, so it's a tough uh, world out there right now. One interesting thing, though, is that uh, the amount of contracts for enlisted people that they did create were of a higher quality, meaning the talent of those signing the contracts was higher. The military saw people scoring higher on their armed forces, armed forces qualification test. So, uh, you know, it's showing that the military is getting some of the talent that it's hoping to get. Uh, however, the military also can't rely on this retention forever, especially as in-strengths might be increasing. Uh, the Army earlier this month for the first time started offering a $50,000 enlistment bonus for some positions. So that shows that they're really starting to uh, you know, clamp down on this recruiting effort, uh, considering the retention rates may be saturated as much as they, they are at this point. And Scott, on the facilities front, there is a big hospital being built by the military overseas. And this is pretty surprising size and scope and price. What's going on there? Yeah, it's humongous. It's really replacing a hospital that's been around since the World War II era. And it's in Germany. They just awarded a billion dollar contract or nearly a billion dollars. This is going to be a 985,000 square foot facility with nine operating rooms, 120 exam rooms and 68 beds. That'll also have the possibility to expand to another 25 additional beds in emergencies. They're hoping to finish this in 2027. And, and what it's called is the Rhine Ordnance Barracks Medical Replacement Center. And uh, so this is uh, something to keep an eye on, considering it's a lot of money. Um, you know, we, we're going to see how these contracts end up going, if they can stay on schedule. And uh, one important thing to, to note is that Germany is also throwing in some money. They're investing about $180 billion into this, considering it'll probably help uh, them as well. Yes, I'm just doing a little mental calculation. And if you include the emergency beds, it's approximately $10 million a bed. That's more than a condo in Manhattan. It's quite expensive, for sure. They're definitely providing some good care for those uh, service members and their families as well. Federal News Network, Scott Mossioni and Jared Serbu. Check out their latest DOD Reporter's Notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner 
1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.